podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. good boys and girls two-footed podcast today is monday it is the 4th of september i hope you're all well hope you all had a nice weekend weather update the sun is actually shining properly it is actually warm today for the first time since june it's tremendous stuff really uh we're going to move on we're going to go through the weekend's premier league action we start obviously friday night Luton Town 1, West Ham United 2. Jared Bowen continues his good run of form. He opens the scoring on 37 minutes. Luton had plenty of shots, very few quality shots. 
little bit rushed, little bit ragged at times. Kurt Zuma makes it 2-0 on 85 minutes with a free header. Somehow he finds himself free in the penalty area, gets on the end of a set piece and heads home. Mads Jewel Anderson did pull one back for Luton, but it was to no avail. West Ham's good start to the season continues. That's 10 points for the Hammers now from their opening four games, which they would have snapped your hand off for before the season began. For Luton, it's no points from three. Obviously, played one game less than everybody else, along with Burnley. <laughs> you've you've got to think that it's going to be a really tough season for Luton. Now, they have favourable fixtures coming up. Fulham away. We don't know how the Jaipolinia thing has settled after his failed move to Bayern. Then Wolves at home. And Wolves, because of how their transfer window went, are going to be in the relegation battle most likely this season. Then they play Exeter away in the Cup. Then they get Everton away. And again... Everton are a team that look like they could be heading down. They just look like they've got no belief in themselves. So Luton have an opportunity through these next three league games to pick up some points and and get their season moving in the right direction. But undeniably, it's going to be a slog for them. The Hammers, like I said, 10 points, currently sit in fourth. They've been... They've been impressive. I mean, they were a little bit fortunate on the opening day to get a draw away to Bournemouth. But they beat West Ham. They went and beat Brighton. Now they've gone and beaten Luton. They get Man City at home next. Then they play Baca in the Europa League. Then they play Liverpool away. Then Lincoln City in the Cup. And then Sheffield United at home. So their next three games... If they can take four points, I think they'll be happy with the next four, with, with four points from from those games. The big thing for them, obviously, will be progressing in Europe, progressing in the domestic cups because they've gotten a taste for silverware now. And I'd imagine that their primary aim is to go hunting more. Um, we'll move on. Saturday kickoffs: Sheffield United two. Everton 2. This actually turned out to be a much better game than I thought it would be. Abdullah Dekure made it 1-0 with a scrap, one nil to Everton with a scrappy goal on 14. Cameron Archer with an excellent goal to equalise on 33. Jordan Pickford's really unfortunate, just on the stroke of half-time. It's really good from Archer. He bends a shot round Pickford. It hits the post, comes back. It hits Pickford, who's dived to try and save the initial shot. And it ends up in the back of the net. Pickford would redeem himself with a couple of really good saves in the second half. And Arnett Danjuma getting on the end of a Patterson cross to make it 2-2 and rescue a point for Everton. Like I say, a decent game. Both sides gave everything they have. It's the first point of the season for both sides. I would still put these two in my likely-to-get-relegated group if I'm being honest. I think it's those two, Luton and Wolves right now that I'm looking at and thinking, I don't have a whole lot of faith in you. Burnley, I could be talked into putting in that group, but at the same time, they've had a very difficult start and they do play good football and they've 
spent a lot of money. And I think it'll take a little bit of time, but there's a lot of good players in that squad. So I think Burnley should be okay. It's the other four that I'm really looking at. Um, Sheffield United moving forward next three games. Spurs away. That's tough. Newcastle at home. That's tough. And then West Ham away. So a difficult run for the Blades. A very, very difficult run. And it's not going to get easy this season for them. I don't think they've done enough in the off season. Uh, Everton, they go to, Ar- sorry, they host Arsenal next. Now, last season they did beat Arsenal at home just after Sean Dyche took over. So maybe Arsenal have not looked good this year. They don't like the physicality. I'd be curious to see if Dyche can set the team up. He's now got two weeks to get his team ready for that game. If he can set his team up properly for that one, maybe they can get something, but it's still unlikely. Then they go to Brentford and then that big game with Luton, which comes after they play Aston Villa in the League Cup. So they could well be out of the League Cup before the end of the month. And that Luton game is now massive because both of them are in desperate need of points and both of them have difficult games that they have to manoeuvre around. Luton playing teams that are also going to be scrapping for points and, you know... Everton taking on teams that finished in the top half last season. Into the 3pm kickoffs, Manchester City 5, Fulham 1. 5-1 hugely flatters City here. Hugely flatters City. It is funny that they had five shots on target and scored five five goals. It hugely flatters them. This was not a 5-1 game. So Julian Alvarez puts them one up. On 31 minutes. Good work by Haaland to set him up. Nice easy goal for Alvarez. Tim Ream equalizes two minutes later. And Fulham are back in it. Right on the stroke of half time, City gets a corner. It's swung in. Nathan Aki gets ahead on it. Manuel Akanji is miles offside. And he's very clearly interfering with play. And he lifts his leg. And Bert Leno doesn't know if he's going to play the ball or not. So Leno can't dive until the last minute. That goal should not have stood. Should not have stood. Haaland makes it three on 58. He makes it four on 70 from the penalty spot. And then in stoppage time, he completes the hat-trick. Fulham can count themselves very unfortunate there. The Aki goal should not have counted. And their heads went on that one. And they came out in the second half looking shook. Now, the penalty was also a little bit soft, but I do think it was a penalty. So I don't think they can really complain about that. But I do wonder how that game might have gone had it gone in 1-1. I think City still would have won, but it definitely wouldn't have been 5-1. Moving on. Next up, those teams have, well, City have, uh, West Ham away. That's tough. Then they play Red Star in the Champions League. Then they get Forest. Then they go to Newcastle in the EFL Cup in what's a tough game. And then they go to Wolves. That then sets them up for a very important run where they play Leipzig, Arsenal away, Brighton, Young Boys, and then United away. So the next three games in the league are easier than the following three games. The following three games are really tough. To go Arsenal away, Brighton home, uh, United away, 
in consecutive weeks is going to be tough. There is an international break between the Arsenal game and the Brighton game, but you know it's still consecutive games. Um, for Fulham, four points from their four games. It's not a dreadful start, but I'm sure they would have been hoping for better. They get Luton at home next. They'll expect to win that. Then they go to Palace for a London derby. They play Norwich in the EFL Cup, and then they host Chelsea. And it'll be really interesting to see what kind of stage Chelsea are at by then, because right now they're a train wreck. But by then, with Pochettino having more time, perhaps he started to scope the real team there. Um, Luton, or sorry, Fulham, I think, will, will be looking to beat Luton, get a result against Palace. And I think they'd take a draw at home to Chelsea if it was given to them. If they could take five points from those three games, I think they'd take it now. Speaking of Chelsea, uh, Chelsea nil, Nottingham Forest won in the biggest surprise of the weekend. Anthony Alanga with the only goal of the game on 48 minutes after good work from Teo Awaniyi. Chelsea were awful. They were genuinely awful. They had all of the ball. They had a ton of shots. The only big chance that they really created, Nicholas Jackson managed to spoon over the bar from four yards out. Like Matt Turner didn't have a whole lot to do in this game. This was not a game where he went home thinking, I've had an absolute world. He let me call everybody and tell them. He had very little to do. Now, what he had to do, he did well, but he had very little to do. I thought Forrest, as a whole, defended quite well, limited where they were allowing Chelsea to get their shots in from. Willie Bolly could barely walk by the end of the game. He'd put so much into it. Uh, Joe Worrell and Scott McKenna both played well. Ola Aina did, did make one incredible block in the first half. That's worth re-watching. So if you haven't seen that game or even the highlights of the game, Go back and watch for that in the first half. It's a goal-saving block. Mangala was very good. Yates ran himself into the ground. Gibbs White and Danilo gave everything they have. And Awani just he just bothered the Chelsea backline. He just went up and started throwing himself into them, and he was very, very effective. That's a huge three points for Forrest. Since being promoted to the Premier League at the start of last season, or the end of the season before last, Forrest had played 21 home games. Sorry, 21 away games and won one of them. That was at Southampton, who were relegated. And now they've beaten Chelsea away. So it's a huge lift for Forrest, but it's damning for Chelsea. It truly is damning for Chelsea. And if you take a look at what Chelsea have put together over the last 12 months, like it really does paint a picture of a club that's in absolute chaos. They're on their third manager in that time. Tuchel was sacked this time last year. So they're on their third manager, not counting the Frank Lampard, and we should count Lampard because he was in charge for, what, six, seven games? So fourth manager in some ways. They've spent a billion quid in the last 14 months on this squad. And when you look at it, like there's a lot of talent that they've brought in, a lot of talent. And talent is the key word here. 
because there's not a lot of finished product. Some of the players they signed last season were the finished product, and they are now in the process of being binned off. So they signed Raheem Sterling. He had a poor year last year, has been much better this season. Koulibaly already gone on a significant loss. They signed Slanina uh, and Chukwameka, their youngsters. Kukurea was meant to be the finished product. He's now, I mean, what is he, fourth choice left back? Really? Third choice? Third choice left back. Yeah, third choice left back. Chilwell, Matson, and Kukurea. Like, that's not ideal. Uh, they signed Kaiseida. He's he's a promising one. They signed Fafana, and he got injured. That's unfortunate. They signed Aubameyang. He's gone already. In the winter, they signed Badi Ashile. Now, he's he's not the finished product, but he's more towards the finished product than just potential. Datro Fafana, potential. Andre Santos, potential. Noni Mureki, potential. Malo Gusto, potential. Jimmy J. Morgan, potential. They obviously loaned in Dennis Sakari and Joe Felix, and neither of them worked out. They did sign Enzo, but I mean, at this point, Enzo's only 22, so he's not anywhere close to the finished product. And they signed Mikhailo Mudrik, and I, I just don't know what to make of it. I said at the time it was a bad move. 88.5 million was a ludicrous amount to spend on a player who had been pretty nondescript up until last season, had an electric six months playing in a Ukrainian league that hadn't been as weak in probably 20 years because all the good foreign players had left and playing a handful of Champions League games. You paid 88.5 million for that? That's not good. That's not clever. Who signed off on that? Who from the footballing side signed off on that? Was that purely an ego move? Because Arsenal were trying to sign him. And Arsenal have had a very lucky escape. If Edu had signed him and he performed the way he has, I think Edu would have been sacked. There's a lot of potential in what they signed last year. And in a couple of years, they will start to reap the rewards. But for now... Very little of this is helping them. This season, again, mass expenditure, but again, mostly potential. Nicholas Jackson, all potential. Nkunku is closer to the finished product, but he's injured. Diego Moreira, potential. Angelo Gabriel, potential. Leslie Ogachukwu, potential. Axel de Sassi, again, closer to the finished product, but actually he he might be what he is. He might be what he is. Robert Sanchez, I, I don't know what to make of him. Moises Caicedo, still potential. He's only 21. Superb player. Hasn't had a good start. Romeo Lavia, all potential. David Washington, all potential. Dorde Petrovic, all potential. Cole Palmer, all potential. But they spent all of this money, all of this money. And let's be honest, they haven't bought a title-winning team for a billion quid. They haven't bought a title-winning team. 
And when you start to dig into each position, there's there's some concerns in a lot of them. Like goalkeeper, they've signed Slanina, Sanchez, and Petrovic. Slanina is hugely promising, but he's very young. And really, you don't want to be throwing a keeper into that kind of environment at Chelsea where you're expected to win major trophies every year until they're like 21, 22, maybe even 23 and have been well-seasoned. And I know there's exceptions to the rule. I know there is. But like I've always looked at David De Gea and thought, if you hadn't been chucked in at United the way you were, I think you would have become a much better goalkeeper. So... I, I don't I don't know like there's major question marks over Robert Sanchez. He's not gonna win you anything. He might lose you a few games, but he won't win them for you. So you've got questions at goalkeeper. At right back, Gusto's outstanding, and obviously they've got Reese James, but Reese James is always hurt. At left back, you've got Chilwell, you've got Cucurea, whatever's gonna happen with him, you've got Matson who can play there. There's question marks over all of them. Matson's small. He's not great defensively. Kukurea's been a disaster since going there. Chilwell's a good player, but he's a little bit suspect defensively, and he is injury-prone. Centre-back, what's the pairing? That's the question I have. What is the pairing? Is it is the plan for Fana and Colwell? Is that the plan? It's promising, but what kind of player are you getting back when Wes Fafana comes back? And then the question's over, what is the plan with Paddy Ashile? Where does he go if Colwell is going to be the starter? What do you do to manage Thiago Silva, who is a liability and has been since he signed? And I don't want to hear that they won a European Cup. They finished 11th. They won a European Cup playing anti-football. Deep block of five. Deep midfield and counterattacks. Thomas Tuchel went completely against everything he's ever stood for as a coach to make up for the fact that he had to hide Thiago Silva. It's been the same thing since. And Chelsea fans don't want to admit it. And Sky laud him. He does basic things. Oh, look at the experience. He's a Rolls Royce of a defender. And yet they ignore the massive swaths of space either side of him that teams can take advantage of. They ignore the fact that the guys playing either side of him have to cover so much extra ground to make up for him. You've got questions in midfield. Now, you would assume Caicedo and Enzo is the partnership. Is that the best use of Enzo? Because you want one of them to be a bit more dynamic. And Caicedo has a bit of dynamism to him. But I always think he's a little bit better when he sits in. And Enzo's better when he sits in. So it remains to be seen if that's the pairing that will actually work all the well. I've seen people say, oh, you play Lavia as the base, Caicedo and Enzo. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a midfield that's going to work. The Caicedo thing, again, seemed to be an ego thing. Because for me, Amadou Onana from Everton would have made more sense next to Enzo. And I said that last season. 
You sit Enzo and let him run the game from deep and send Onana box to box as a destroyer who can get on the end of things in the opposition penalty area and can also carry the ball through the phases very, very well. And when they signed Ogachukwu, I thought, oh, that's what they're doing. They've, they've signed the next best thing. A guy who maybe is more talented than Onana, maybe has a higher ceiling than Onana, but doesn't really help them now. And then they went and they signed Caicedo, and I don't understand why they signed Lavia. Now, they're all immensely talented players. You can only play a certain amount of them at the one time. And I would imagine come March, April, there's going to be a, a very large amount of unhappy players at Chelsea who've wasted a year of their career, including Ogachoku and Lavia. Unless someone gets injured and they start to get in regularly. And Conor Gallagher's playing every week now. And look, he adds he adds running power, he adds mobility but I don't think he adds a whole lot more. And defensively, he's not good, which is strange. I think it's because he's a bit of a headless chicken. Like Conor Gallagher off the ball, harrying people, closing them down, all very, very good. Conor Gallagher been asked to sit in and protect the defence, not so good. Then there's question marks on both wings. What's the long-term plan? You would imagine Nkunku is the long-term tank that the plan will be Caicedo and Enzo winning Kunku in front, and that's what they'll do. And if they do that, that could be very good. But you've got to find goals from somewhere, and Nkunku can't get them all himself because Jackson's not a big-time goal scorer. Mudeki's not a big-time goal scorer. Sterling can be, but you've got to use him in a certain way. Mudrik doesn't look like he'll ever score a goal again. And I don't really know what to make of, of the other options, you know? Datro Fafana, talented, but a couple of years away. David Washington, talented, a couple of years away. Mudeki's very talented, but how do you get him in the team if you're going to be playing Sterling? Angelo Gabriel, the same thing. I don't understand what the long-term plan is here, because I don't think there actually is one. This just seemed to be one enormous talent grab. Try and get them all in, and then we'll figure it out afterwards rather than actually buying for purpose. They were atrocious at the weekend and they have been really poor this season. And it's now four points from four games. And it hasn't exactly been the toughest start. Like, yes, Liverpool at home is tough. But after that, I mean, West Ham is difficult, but not a game Chelsea should be going and getting turned over in. Luton's an easy one. And then Forest at home should be easy. And like, remember, it's four points. They've played three of their games at home. They've only been away once so far. They go to Bournemouth next, then they get Villa at home, and then they play uh, Fulham away. In between Villa and Fulham, they've got Brighton at home in the League Cup. Forest will be thrilled with their start. Six points. Very unfortunate to lose to United. Very unfortunate to lose to Arsenal. Gave them both games. They look like a proper Premier League team. They get Burnley at home next. They will expect to win that game. Then they go to City and then they play Brentford. If they can go to City and just give them a game, just not get walloped. That's progression from last year. Burnley and Brentford at home, if you can take four points from them, I think you're happy. 
We move on. Burnley 2, Tottenham 5. Lyle Foster put Burnley 1 up. They caught Spurs cold at the start of the game. Really good work, really good finish. And Spurs were then magnificent from then on. Sun equalised on 16 minutes. Romero scores a worldie on the stroke of halftime. Madison scores a belter on 54. Sun gets his second on 63 and gets his hat-trick on 66. And Spurs look like... They look like they might be the best team in the league. They're not, but they look like they are when it when it clicks and starts flowing for them. Uh, Josh Brownhill did get a late consolation there for Burnley, but Ange Ball is in full effect here. And Tottenham are now second in the league, level on points at Liverpool, West Ham, and Arsenal, better goal difference than any of them. They've scored the joint most, most goals in the league along with City. They're playing incredible free-flowing football. James Madison has been a revelation for them. Sun playing through the middle as the nine might be the answer. And you can bring Brennan Johnson in then and play him off the left and Kulisevsky off the right. Sun will get you goals if you give him the chances. And Madison will give him the chances. The Basuma Papimatar Sar double pivot in midfield is really, really impressive. And Romero and Van de Ven are finding their feet as a pairing. There's still times where they've been left a little bit isolated because Pedro Poro and Destiny Adoji, they're both wingers. They play fullback, but they're wingers. Their mentality is to get into that final third and make things happen. And Poro's ball for, for Son was sensational. For the was the fourth or the fifth goal? I think it's the fifth goal. Either way, it's a sensational pass. Um, they're playing incredibly good football. Incredibly good football. Inventive, quick, purposeful. You wouldn't think Ange had only taken over in the summer. They look like a team that's been together for years. You wouldn't think they'd sold their best player in the summer either. Although I have always said I do think Son is a better player than Kane, but that's just my opinion. Um, I feel sorry for Burnley because they've had a really tough start. I mean, it, it doesn't get much tougher than City, Villa, and then uh, Spurs. But they have had them all at home. And they've taken no points and they've conceded 11 goals. And that's concerning. Their away game was meant to be looting. It got postponed. Their next three in the league are Nottingham Forest. Now, they've already beaten Forest once this season in the EFL Cup. Then they play United. That's at home. Then they play Gary Neville Salford away in the EFL Cup. And then they go to Newcastle. So that Forest game is massive for them. But I do think they'll look at that United team and think, we can get something there. They're not very good. But it's going to be a slog. It's going to be a slog. It might take six months for them to find their feet and really get settled in, which is going to be tough. But there are enough bad teams in the league this year that maybe they can still be in a decent position, like not a complete write-off come January, get 
maybe one more in. I think I think they're a centre back short. The deal for the Benfica centre back fell through. They had a deal for Ian Matson lined up as well, and it fell fell through. Um, I think they're one short in defence. So wouldn't be surprised me if they went and spent some money there in January. But I do think in the second half of the season, Burnley will be will be better. Um, as for Spurs, like I said, they, they look like the best team in the league right now. Next up, Sheffield United at home. That's a game they'll expect to win. Then it's tough. It's Arsenal away and then Liverpool at home. Two huge games back to back. If they go to the Emirates and play like they have been playing and avoid a slow start, they can take Arsenal apart. They're good enough, they're confident enough and they're aggressive enough to do it. And the same with Liverpool at home. Because Liverpool are frail in defence. Liverpool have a lot of firepower, but so do Spurs. That that game will be won and lost in midfield more, more than likely. There is flaws in this Spurs team. There's space to play into against them. And that's something Ange had an issue with at Celtic in the early days as well, but he figured it out quite quickly. He'll figure it out with Spurs as well, but it might be mid-November, late November before he does. Their next three games are tough. September's a big month for them. But if they could come out of that, let's say they, they beat Sheffield United, beat Liverpool and draw with Arsenal, take seven points, or beat Arsenal, draw with Liverpool. Let's say they take seven points. If you'd offered them 17 points in the first seven games, there's no question they'd have jumped on it. They would have absolutely jumped on it. I think they're in a good position this year to potentially get top four. And I think if I was making my predictions this, today, and I am going to make them maybe maybe this week, potentially Friday, because it's an international break, so we, we've got no we've got no uh, Premier League games to preview Friday. I think I'd pick Spurs to finish in the top four right now. I want to look do a little bit more digging. I'm still going through each squad and putting it in place so I can actually visualize it in front of me. Um, but I think right now I'd probably pick them to finish top four. But we've had we've had false dawns with Tottenham before. Now, I think Ange is a special manager. He's not Conte. He's not Mourinho. He doesn't have their CV. But he does have a little bit of magic about him that I think taps into something a little bit different with players. Players believe in Conte and Mourinho. Ange believes in the players and he empowers the players. Players cow to Mourinho, to Conte. They do what they're told by those managers. Ange puts them in positions to get the very best of them. I think that's the difference. And that's why it might work at Spurs with this group of players. Uh, carrying on then. Brentford 2, Bournemouth 2. This turned out to be another good game. Uh, Matthias Jensen put Brentford 1 up on 7 minutes. Uh, really clever free kick from the angle. Caught the goalkeeper napping. Dominic Solanke equalised on 30 minutes. Bournemouth dominated the middle 
well, not the middle part of the game. They dominated probably 60 minutes of this game. And David Brooks put them 2-1 up on 77 before Brian and Bournemouth scored a wonderful goal. If you haven't seen it, go and watch the first touch. Just go and watch the first touch that sets him up for the goal. It is absolutely outrageous. He probably should have had another one in the game. And this game could have ended 3-3. It could have ended 4-4. A draw overall, probably the fairest result. But Bournemouth were really good and will be disappointed to not take three points considering the Mbomo goal came in the 93rd or 94th minute. Uh, Table-wise... Brentford have eight points. Sorry, Brentford are eight with six points. Uh, They're unbeaten thus far. The draw specialists, as they were last year. Next up for them is a trip to Newcastle, followed by Everton home and Nottingham Forest away. They've also got Arsenal in the League Cup. Bournemouth, only the two points so far, but they have had a tough start. Draw at West Ham, lost to Liverpool, Lost to Spurs, draw with Brentford. That's kind of what you would have expected. They play Chelsea next at home. That's a big one. Then they go to Brighton. Then they get Arsenal. So it's a really tough next three games. They kind of need three points from Chelsea and they might well get them. Um, After that, it gets a little bit easier. Everton away, Wolves home, Burnley home. So they should make up points there to make up for these next tough three games. Carrying on. Last game on Saturday then was the late kickoff. Brighton three, Newcastle one. It was the Evan Ferguson show. Scores on 27, scores again on 65, wraps up the hat-trick on 70 with a goal that took a heavy deflection. Brighton dominated Newcastle. Absolutely dominated them in all phases of the game. Toward the part at ease, probably could have had a couple more. Uh, Callum Wilson did pull one back for the tune. The tune have had a, a poor start. There's no way around it, but they've had a very hard start. Like they got Villa, City, Liverpool, and Brighton, all teams that qualified for Europe last season. So that's really tough. They hammered Villa and then they've lost the other three games, but really and truly, no one expected them to get a point at City. They lost. That's fair enough. You expect to lose to City. I know Liverpool were garbage last season. And the way the game played out, Newcastle will be furious if they let it slip. But if you're looking at it objectively before the game, losing to Liverpool isn't a surprise. And going to Brighton and losing is not a surprise. It does get a little easy for, easier for them in the league. They get Brentford, they get Sheffield United away, and they get Burnley. Those are three winnable games. Those are three games they kind of have to win. Uh, they do have to go to Milan in the Champions League, and then they get City in the League Cup. Uh, we'll probably talk about the Champions League and such tomorrow. Um, some tough groups in that. Actually, no, tomorrow we'll do... Tomorrow we're going to do a review of the transfer window. Uh, Wednesday will be nostalgia. And I might make a Champions League-related nostalgia and talk about a couple of finals that stand out to me. Uh, and we'll we'll tie it into this year's Champions League groups. That's, that's the plan as things stand. Um, on the topic of that, 
So Monday we reviewed the games of the weekend. I'm happy enough with that. Wednesday is Nostalgia Day, and I love that. Thursday we generally do questions. So keep sending your questions in for Thursdays if you can. That's brilliant. It really helps out. And then Friday we preview the weekend's games. So I'm happy with that. We do news and gossip every day. Happy enough with that. The Tuesday show is where I'm I'm falling short. I don't really enjoy just going through all the results. And I I, I don't really think it's all that interesting for you guys, because if you wanted to know, you could probably go and look yourselves. So let me know if there's any ideas you have for something I could do regularly on a Tuesday through the season. Let me know if you like the trip around Europe going up and down the league. Maybe you do, and maybe if you do, we can stick with it. But I'd like to to tinker with that Tuesday. I'm happy with the rest of the week. I'd like to tinker with Tuesday. So let me know. Um, We were talking about Brighton next. Uh, So, yeah, nine points. They'll be thrilled with their start. Obviously, the, the defeat to West Ham was disappointing, but... They hammered Luton, they hammered Wolves, and they hammered Newcastle, to be fair. And the Brighton-West Ham game, even though West Ham won 3-1, it could easily have ended 3-3. Next up for them, they go to Old Trafford. I think they'll go there confident. Then they play Bournemouth at home, and then they go to Villa Park, which will be tough. They've got AEK Athens in their first Europa League game and Chelsea in the League Cup. they got a really tough Europa League group. A really tough one. We talked about it last week. Uh, on to Sunday's games then. First up, Crystal Palace 3, Wolves 2. This game was horrendous for the first 50 minutes and magnificent from then on. Magnificent. Just brilliant football. Alson uh, Edward put Palace 1 up on 56. Huang equalised on 65. Ebri Chiesi made it 2-1 on 78. Edward made it 3... Sorry, made it... it as they made it 2-1, Edward made it 3-1. That was an 84 minutes. Matthias Cunha did pull a late goal back for Wolves, uh, but unfortunately they just fell short. But this was a really fun last 50 minutes of the game or so. Well, 45 minutes of the game, including the stoppage time. Um, big win for Palace. A big win for Palace. A win they needed. They have seven points now from their four games. They're seventh in the league. They went to Sheffield United and won. They got a good draw with Brentford. They did lose to Arsenal. That And they were unfortunate to lose that one. But now they get their first win of the season. Uh, sorry, their second win of the season. Their first home win of the season uh, against Wolves. And their fixtures are tough from here on. Like Villa away is tough. Fulham home, it's home, but it's a London derby. And then a trip to Old Trafford. They actually go to Old Trafford twice in four days. They play them in the EFL Cup on the 26th and then in the Premier League on the 30th. You'd assume they'll probably stay in the north for the few days, but I don't know. Maybe they'll travel back down and travel back up. They might actually just do that because it's probably easier for training and stuff. But I'm sure there's a there's a team in the northeast Northwest, Northwest as it is, geography is not a strong point. Um, who'd be more than happy to host Palace for a few days and get them comfortable to go out and beat United? I'm, I'm sure you know City, Liverpool, one of them would would put Palace up and give them you know space to train if they needed it. 
Um, Wolves are 15th. They've won one game. They beat Everton. They lost to United. They were very unfortunate to lose that game. They shouldn't have won that game. They should have won that game. They got hammered by Brighton. They beat Everton. Now they lose to Crystal Palace. They did win against Blackpool in midweek. They get Liverpool at home next. That's an early kickoff after the international break on a Saturday, which is huge advantage for Wolves. Then they go to Luton. That's a game they have to win. Then they get City at home next. So that's tough. They play Ipswich away in the EFL Cup between Luton and City. They need to win that Luton game. Then they're going to need to get a result against Villa, which is the game after City. They've got to keep picking up points. In a rough, rough summer. Uh, preview, their summer is going to be harshly rated. But at the same time, I mean, the Neves deal is the tough one. We'll get into it tomorrow. The Neves deal is tough. It's tough for me to accept as well. And I'm not a Wolves fan. Uh, Liverpool 3, Aston Villa 0. Liverpool's best performance of the season by a country mile. Sabozlai puts them one up on three minutes. Maddie Cash own goal on 22. And then Salah wraps it up on 50. Uh, sorry, 55. Liverpool cruised. Villa had moments, but nothing more than that. Liverpool probably should have had five in this game. Nunes hit the crossbar. He missed a good chance. They were dominant throughout. And uh, Villa had no real answer for them. So, Villa sit 10th with six points, which isn't a bad start. They got thumped by Newcastle. They did the thumping against Everton. They went and beat Burnley, and now they've lost to Liverpool. Uh, They've beaten Hibs, obviously, in the Conference League twice. They get Palace at home next, then Legia Warsaw away, then Chelsea away, then Everton home in the League Cup, and then Brighton home. That's a tough run. There's no easy one there in the league. And the European games are going to be, they should win them, but they're still going to be tough to overcome. It'll be interesting to see what type of team Emery puts out there. Because Villa should be able to rest multiple starters and still win those games. I wonder, will they just bin off the League Cup, just play a bunch of kids and hope to go out? But it is a chance at silverware. Like it's a real chance at silverware this year for them. Uh, for Liverpool, they are third in the league behind City and Spurs. They have drawn with Chelsea, beaten uh, Bournemouth, beaten Newcastle, and now beaten Aston Villa. They take on Wolves away in the next game. Then they go to Lask in the Europa League. Then it's West Ham at home then Leicester at home in the League Cup, and then that trip to Spurs, which is the tough one. Now, West Ham will be tough as well, but Spurs is the real tough one there. Uh, Liverpool will be looking for seven points from those three games. And, uh, you know, to get through in the League Cup, to get themselves up and running in the Europa League, but they should be able to play the reserves in the Europa League and not worry too much about anything. Final game then, the most controversial game controversial game of the weekend. Arsenal 3, Manchester United 1. Marcus Rashford put United 1 up on 27 minutes. Great counter-attacking goal. Uh, Eriksen leads the charge. He slips the ball into Rashford. He drives towards the United box. 
White and Saliba back up and back up and back up. He shifts it onto his right foot and bends it into the corner. Really good goal. Within a minute, Arsenal level. And of course, it's Martin Odegaard because when Arsenal need a goal, when Arsenal need someone to drag them across the coals, it's always, or drag them out of the fire is probably what I'm looking for. Uh, drag them across the coals, I think, is to give them a bit of a bollocking. Uh, drag them out of the fire is probably what I'm looking for here. It is always Martin Odegaard, always. And it's a really good sweeping move by Arsenal, and he finishes very, very well. From there, we had some controversy. So Arsenal were awarded a penalty, and on review it was overturned, and rightly overturned. Kai Havertz drove into the penalty area. Wan-Bissaka dangled a leg and then pulled it back. Havertz kicked his leg out to initiate the contact and threw himself on the ground. Penalty correctly overturned. Then it got messy. United think they've won the game late, late on. Garnacho gets played through, finishes brilliantly. The replay, he looked onside. The freeze frame looking directly across, he looked onside. And VAR gave it offside. And it's questionable where they took the lines from. But it is what it is. Still, a point apiece would have been a fair result. Arsenal get a corner in the 96th minute. It comes across, clears everyone. Declan Rice at the back post. He takes a very heavy touch on his chest and knocks the ball fully two yards away from him and has to recorrect himself to go and get that ball. Johnny Evans is being mauled by Gabriel. And as he attempts to break to go and try and charge the shot down, Gabriel is fouling him. Rice gets the shot away because Evans can't get there. It beats Onana. It's 2-1 Arsenal. There is no world in which the goal should have stood. It is as blatant a foul by Gabriel as you're likely to see. Now, United are also whinging about a penalty. I'm not having that one. Uh, Hoysland gets blocked off a little bit by Gabriel, but I, I think it's good defending. Uh, Arsenal wrap it up on 101 minutes. United are pushing forward, trying to salvage something from the game. Arsenal hit them on the counter. Jesus makes the low look incredibly foolish and finishes really well. But that goal doesn't come about if the Rice one is disallowed, which it should have been. I think the referee had a stinker. I think I think he had a stinker. Now, look, the offside is is what it is, but the Rice goal shouldn't have counted. United should have got out there out of there with a draw. And they deserve to get out of there with a draw. This was two very average sides. You know, when you think back to the great games between these teams during their heyday and compare it to this, like, it doesn't come close. It doesn't come close. And I know, like, a lot of people buy into the drama and all that kind of stuff. The calibre of football. Arsenal played some nice football. They did. But there's a massive disconnect in their team. They've spent all that money and gotten weaker. Thomas Partey is now out for a couple of months as well with an injury. Now, some would argue he shouldn't be playing football at all, but it is what it is. 
But Havertz is not fitting into this team. And a big part of it is not his fault. It's Martinelli's fault. Because Havertz is making really good runs and Martinelli's not giving him the ball. And when he is giving it to him, he's firing it at him at hip height where no player is going to be able to control the ball. Martinelli's a really talented player. There's no finesse, no subtlety to his game. Everything is done at full speed and full power all the time. He walloped a cross in when all he needed to do was roll the ball eight yards into Havertz's path. Instead, he whips the cross like at him, not to him, at him. Really poor. Really, really poor. Um, Gabriel had a good game aside from the wrestling, but he does that on every corner. Gabriel is always wrestling somebody on every set piece. Odegaard was good. Rice was good. Now, Rice's performance, according to Gary Neville and Simpletons, who didn't watch the game, uh, but, you know, react to scorelines and stuff. You'd swear it was Lothar Mateus against Yugoslavia in the 1990 World Cup. You'd swear that's what it was. Or prime Rijkaard rampaging around in the late 80s. He was just good. That's all. He didn't make a real impact on the game until he scored the goal. Um... Saka was fairly muted. Eddie Nketiah was like a couple of really bad fouls away from having an impactful game. But Lindelof and Martinez, the, the Martinez yellow card could easily have been a red. He went off injured and God knows how long he'll be out for. United ended the game with Harry Maguire and Johnny Evans playing centre-back, which will tell you where their squad is. Now, to his credit, Maguire actually played pretty well when he came on. Uh, Evans, less so. Garnacho looked lively. Hoysland looked lively on his debut. There, there is a front four that United could move to with Garnacho, Rashford and Hoysland with Bruno behind them. That could be terrifying. Electric pace, great physicality, good finishing. Creativity from Bruno. But everything behind them is awful. And they've spent a fortune under this manager. And he still doesn't have any identity to the team. Like, they're, they're playing full-blown Ollie Ball. They really are playing full-blown Ollie Ball. And I've seen United fans try and make excuses and all the rest. But the fact of the matter is, United are not a good football team right now. And Eric Ten Hag has played a ludicrous amount of minutes. Sorry, has, has spent a ludicrous amount of money. His record away to the big six. Lost 7-0 at Anfield. Lost 6-3 at the Etihad. A 1-1 at Stamford Bridge against a Chelsea team who were pathetic. 3-2 away to Arsenal last year. 3-1 away this year. 2-2 away to Spurs last year, 2-0 away this year. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. United have a lot of work to do. I'm not at all impressed by this manager. Not at all impressed. Because he's there over a year now and they still have no style of play. And there can be no argument. He has been backed to the hilt. He has been backed to the hilt. And Gary Neville embarrassed himself once again on national television, crying about 
how United were restricted by FFP. Like, the reason United could only spend $215 million this summer, Gary, is because they also spent $215 million last summer. That's why. Uh, United, next up. Brighton at home. I expect them to lose. Then they go to Bayern. I expect them to lose. Then they go to Burnley. They should get a result there. They play Palace at home twice, League Cup and then Premier League. Then Galatasaray at home and then Brentford at home. I expect them to lose the next two games and they should look to win the next six, actually, because it's Sheffield United and after that, and then Copenhagen, so seven. So they should actually win seven games in a row. Burnley, Palace, Palace, Galatasaray, Brentford, Sheffield United, Copenhagen. That should be seven wins in a row before they face City. So they should go into the City game at the end of October, brimming with confidence. And if they don't, major questions are going to need to be asked. Uh, Arsenal sit in that group at the top with 10 points. They're fifth in the league just based on goal difference. But they haven't been impressive this year. Scraped past Forest, scraped past uh, Palace, drew at Fulham, very fortunate win over United. Very, very fortunate win. But but they are picking up points. They're winning their games. And that's all they really care about at the moment. They're settling new players in. The, the timber loss through injury, I think, is huge for them. Because I do think he was actually going to play a huge role this uh, this coming season. Um, next up for them, then, obviously, Everton away. PSV at home in the Champions League. Then Spurs at home, which is huge. Then Brentford away in the Cup and then Bournemouth away. So a favourable run, bar that Spurs game. But then it gets tough for them in October. They go to Lens, then they get City, and they've got to go to Chelsea. Then they've got to go to Sevilla. Then they get Sheffield United at home, and then it's up to Newcastle. So tough. that Newcastle game is the start of November, admittedly. But it's a, it, it'll get tougher for them. This has been the – they had the easiest start of everybody. So them having 10 points, not really an achievement. Them yet to have a really even half impressive performance. That's more telling than anything else. Uh, Just on Chelsea, actually. Just to go back to Chelsea for a quick second. If we... If we go back 12 months, take out the first four games of of last season and add in the first four games of this season. Chelsea have won 10 games in the last 38 league games. 10. They started off four-game win streak, beat West Ham, beat Palace, beat Wolves, and beat Villa, right? Which means they've only won six of the last 34. Bournemouth at home, Palace at home, Leeds at home, relegated, Leicester away, relegated, and Bournemouth again, plus Luton. So Crystal Palace are the only team who were in the Premier League the season before last that they've beaten in their last 34 games. And if we include the four games that begun the 38-game run, West Ham were dreadful last season, Palace, Wolves, and Villa. And that's 
Steven Gerrard Villa, not Unai Emery Villa. The only manager that they've beaten who's currently still in their job is David Moyes and Rob Edwards from this year. Everyone else has been fired. Everyone else was fired. Vieira was fired. Bruno Lage was fired. Steven Gerrard was fired. Gary O'Neill was fired. Jesse Marsh was fired. Brendan Rodgers was fired. Ridiculous. So 10, 10 wins in 38. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 11 draws. They've taken 41 points from the last 38 league games. Now, if we have a quick look at last season's uh, Premier League table, that would have had them finishing uh, 13th. They finished 12th as it was. The season before, 41 points would have had them in 15th spot. The season before that, 41 points. Depending on their goal difference, which I haven't actually bothered to calculate, uh, probably has them in 17th. At best, 16th. 19-20, probably 15th. 18-19, 15th. 17-18, 15th. 16, 17, 14th, probably based on goal difference, uh, 15, 16, it would have had them in 16th place, 17th place, 17th place, sorry, 17th place, and 14, 15 then to complete a decade of mediocrity, it likely would have had them in 14th. So that's how bad Chelsea have been for 12 months now. Three different managers. Four different managers, including Frank. Now, Tuchel would have only taken charge of one of those games. But still, that is absolutely abysmal. And they spent a billion quid. A billion quid for a team that's averaging a 15th place finish over the last 10 years of the Premier League. Yeah, we'll take a break when we come back. News and gossip. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle at the Emirates yesterday. A 42-year-old man has been arrested on suspicion of assault after an alleged incident during Arsenal 3, Manchester United 1. It follows the circulation of footage on social media showing Micah Richards and Roy Keane involved in an altercation. Keane was apparently the victim of the assault and Richards stepped in to defuse the situation by pinning the man up by his lapels. Uh, the fellow's just lucky Keane didn't decide to lose all sense and reason. By all accounts, Keane acted very professionally in the whole thing and didn't didn't get himself involved. But this man has been arrested on sus- uh, suspicion of assault, so we'll wait and see what happens from that one, sticking on the topic of things involving Manchester United, Eric Ten Hag came out after the game and said the reason Jaden Sancho wasn't included in the squad 
was because of poor performance in training. Sancho came out immediately afterwards and released his own statement on his Twitter account saying, I will not allow people saying things that are completely untrue. I have conducted myself very well in training this week. I believe there are other reasons for this matter that I won't go into. I've been a scapegoat for a long time, which isn't fair. It sounds like things are going to come to a head between Jaden Sancho and Eric Ten Hag. Ten Hag has not treated Jaden Sancho well, and I'm, I'm very hopeful that come January, Jaden Sancho can get away from Manchester United and away from Eric Ten Hag. And the funniest part is the main reason Ten Hag has made him a scapegoat, which he absolutely have, or absolutely has rather, is to detract or just distract from how poor Anthony's been. Because realistically, when Anthony was coming in, Bruno was already there and Rashford was already there. So the only position Anthony was going to take was Sancho's. But Sancho's a better player than Anthony. And Anthony has been awful since he arrived. Now, Sancho hasn't been good at United. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But he's a better player than Anthony. And by the sounds of reports coming from Brazil, he's also a much better person than Anthony. And Ten Hag was the one that insisted on United paying 80-odd million for the Brazilian fidget spinner. And I believe he is using Sancho as a distraction method to turn attention away from how bad Anthony's been. The one thing I will give Anthony credit for, though, is his work rate is very good. He did put in a hell of a shift yesterday. And that's something Sancho sometimes doesn't do. But I'm very hopeful Sancho can get away from United and go and rebuild his career, uh, hopefully come January. Uh, Non-Premier League, but still interesting. Um, American businessman Mark Atanasio is set to increase his ownership stake in Norwich City and achieve parity with current majority shareholders Delia Smith and husband Michael Wynne-Jones. So the Norfolk group, who the American chap owns, will attain 195,012 shares, which will draw him level with Smith and Wynne-Jones' 40% stake. Interesting. UK regulatory body takeover panel has agreed to waive a rule obliging the Norfolk Group to make a mandatory offer to the owners of the remaining 20%, who include the Canaries Trust Supporters Group. And that's why he's not having to do that, because it is owned by the Canaries Trust. Um, At the moment, he owns 14.9%, and he's going to move up to... Sorry, 15.9%. He's going to move up to 40%. Smith and her husband have been majority shareholders for 27 years at Norwich. I didn't realize it was that long, but it it makes sense when you think about it. He's the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers baseball franchise. And he was brought into Norwich with Delia Smith and and Michael Wynne-Jones' blessing. It sounds like they might be preparing their exit strategy. I mean, Delia must be some age at this point. Delia Smith is 82. She's 82. So she probably would quite like someone else to take on the responsibility of the football club. I'm sure she'll keep a small... 
a small share eventually, but I think she will probably look to to move on, um, move on a, a large chunk of her shares to this gentleman who clearly has the money. Um, right, we'll get into the gossip. We've got a couple of days to get into. The gossip doesn't feel as fun when the transfer window is closed. Like, the transfer window literally couldn't be further away as things stand, but we're still going to do the gossip because it's always fun. It just always is fun. Al-Itahad, now the Saudi league is still open. The Saudi transfer window is still open. So Al-Itahad are prepared to offer $200 million for Mohamed Salah before their transfer window closes on September the 7th. Liverpool have already lined up a replacement for Salah and could move for Johan Bakayoko in January. He's not a replacement for Salah. He's a young player to bring in and develop, but he's very, very talented. Lazio decided against signing Mason Greenwood before he joined Hitafe on loan on deadline day. Atletico Madrid's negotiations with Pierre-Emile Heusberg ended after Spurs rejected the first bid as it did not include a obligation to buy. Southampton blocked Che Adams' loan move to Wolves. That's an odd one. I'm not sure why they did that. Chelsea boss Mauricio Pochettino says the transfer window has been tough despite his side spending $400 million. Jesus wept. I'd hate to see what happened if he was working at Spurs this, or at, at, at Wolves rather this summer and had no money to spend. Uh, France winger Nicholas. He's not a French winger. He's a Senegalese. Is he? No, he's Ivory Coast, isn't he? Yeah, he's Ivory Coast. Uh, Nicola Pepe could leave Arsenal for an unnamed Saudi club. I'd imagine it'll be on a free, though. Arsenal are considering terminating his contract one year before the end of it after a proposed deal to Besiktas fell through. 72 million they paid for him. Uh, Liverpool boss Jurgen Klopp is expected to employ Grav- Ryan Gravenberg as a box-to-box number eight in midfield. I'm really interested to see how he does use him. Bayern Munich missed out on three targets on deadline day. Joe Polinia, Armel Belakotchup and Trevo Chalabon. That's very unfortunate. That's very, very unfortunate. And uh, they could have had an old timer window. And I think I, I was talking about it last week. Like they were they were setting themselves up to have an unbelievable window. And then it all fell apart. Uh Senegal defender Mamadou Fall completed a loan move from LAFC to Barcelona with an option to make the move permanent for 5.6 million. Don't know a whole lot about him, have to say. Don't watch a ton of um, MLS. But looks like he moved to the US as a youngster. Went to Montverde Academy, which is a private school in Florida, known for its basketball program. Seems like they're putting some emphasis into football as well. Was signed by LAFC and had a loan at Villarreal last season, which didn't end in a permanent move. Interesting. Interesting. Be interesting to see how he develops. He's a central defender, six foot two. Um, Bournemouth's proposed loan move for Pats and Daka fell through in the final hours. I, I think they might revisit that in January. Damari Gray will stay at Everton despite having an offer from the from a Saudi Arabian club. It's weird. I don't know why they tried to move him on all summer. It just didn't make sense to me. 
Manchester City are set to offer Erling Haaland a basic salary of 600000 a week if he extends it then beyond 2027 as they look to stop him moving to Real Madrid or the Saudi Pro League. If there is a player that I could see moving to Saudi at like 23, 24, 25, it, it is actually Erling Haaland. Like if he got the offer Mbappe got, he'd be gone. Now, I'm not saying that's because of his own decisions, but the people that advise him would absolutely take that money. Now, if City are paying him 600 grand a week as a basic, that means they'll be paying him a million quid a week, including his bonuses. So, you know, when they publish their wage bill and claim to have the third highest wage bill in the league, just remember that it is a nonsense. Manchester City failed with a deadline day bid of 60 million for Eberichi Eze with the Eagles refusing to move from their 80 million asking price. Jurgen Klopp is hoping Liverpool reject a possible 200 million offer from Al Etihad. Um, I think they will, and I think he'll go next summer. The Glazers are set to take Manchester United off the market after failing to secure their asking price. Apparently, they want 10 billion for the club. Juventus want to extend the contracts of a number of players, including Dusan Vlahovic, who they spent all summer trying to flog. Paul Pogba is a target for Saudi Pro League clubs Al-Ali and Al-Itihad, and I would not be at all surprised if he goes there because that would be a very Paul Pogba thing to do. Al-Itihad have made a contract proposal to Sergio Ramos. Ramos has turned it down. He also turned down a move to Galatasaray, and he is going to Sevilla, which is... It's the first thing Sergio Ramos has done in years that I'm actually applauding him for. Uh, Galatasaray are continuing talks at Manchester United about a deal to sign Netherlands midfielder Donny van de Beek. Now, the Turkish window is also open, I think, till the 7th. Galatasaray are also looking at a move for Pierre-Emile Hoysberg. Imagine if they can get the two of them in. They've already signed a bunch of players. Tottenham could agree to end Hugo Lloris' deal with the club a year early after he failed to secure a move on deadline day, having been offered late switches to Newcastle and Nice. Yeah, it's best just to cut bait and move him on because he's the former club captain. You've signed a new goalkeeper. You've get, you've given the captaincy to Hyungman's son. It's very clear Hugo Lloris doesn't have a future there and you should probably move him on. Lazio president, Claudio Latito says Mason Greenwood wanted to join the Italian club, but Manchester United could not complete the paperwork. The fact that you were open to it, Mr. Latito, says quite a lot about you. Salonatana director Morgan De Sanctus, who was quite a good goalkeeper in his day, says the Italian club will not forget what Wolverhampton Wanderers did. That's not actually what he said. He said he wouldn't forget what the Wolves manager did. Now, I don't know that Gary O'Neill has any involvement in transfers there, But he said it wasn't a criticism of the club or its fans. It was a criticism of the manager. And he said it twice. So you're taking what he said and twisting it. English striker Andre Gray, whose previous clubs include Luton, Brentford, Burnley and Watford, is being monitored by a number of championship clubs after he uh, he was released by Greek side Aris Salonika by mutual consent. He wants to move for £20 million from Burnley to Watford. £20 million for Andre Gray, who, if I'm not mistaken, is married to one of the girls at a Little Mix. Let me just check that. I'm almost certain that's what's that's the case. Personal life. Yes, Leanne Pinnock. 
Yeah. He's with us since 2016. They got married this year. They have uh, twins. Fair play. Fair play. Um, so that's, that's two former Premier League footballers that are with members of Little Mix. Not that it's in any way important, but Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and, and Andre Gray. Um, Atletico Madrid and Belgian midfielder Yannick Carrasco will travel to Saudi Arabia to complete a 15 million euro move to Al-Shabaab. Very much a Yannick Carrasco type of move. Joe Polina's brother says that his move to Bayern Munich has only been postponed, so I assume it will go through on January 1st. Mohamed Salah has told Liverpool teammates he wants to stay. Not sure he has, but we'll, we'll move. Former Spain captain Sergio Ramos is going to Sevilla. That's in part to repair the damage he did to his reputation when he was leaving. I think his wife wants to move back to Spain for her work. I think he'd like to live in Sevilla when, or in Seville rather, when he's, uh, when he's done playing because that's you know, where he's from. And as things stand, he is, uh, very much not all that welcome in the region. Fenerbahce are interested in Jorginho and could make a late move before the Turkish window ends on September 15th. It's really clever by the Turkish league. Because they know they're not a real destination, even though like Turkey's awesome. It's a great place to live. The weather's incredible. People are amazing. The football is of a decent quality. The atmospheres are maybe the best in the world. But they are a little bit off the beaten track in some ways. But, and they don't always have mega amounts of money. But what they can do is, they have two weeks after the European transfer windows open, or European transfer windows close, and they can sort of look around at all the the major European clubs and think, right, well, who do Man United have that they're desperate to get rid of? Who do Arsenal have that they're desperate to get rid of? Who do Chelsea have? Liverpool, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Real Madrid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they can come up with a fairly comprehensive list and they can just say, look, we'll pay all the wages and we'll give you a small loan fee. They get the player in, player falls in love with the place, and maybe they keep them. It's a really good, really good idea. Uh, League One side Laurent opted again. This is brilliant. <laughs> League One side Laurent opted making opted against making a deadline day move for Donny Van der Beek because of his attitude earlier in the summer after they agreed a loan deal. So they agreed a loan deal with United, and Donny Van der Beek and his agent refused to return their phone calls. And then on deadline day, called them back and said, "Oh yeah, we'd be up for that now." And they went, "No, you're all right, thanks." Chelsea cleared the path for Tottenham to sign James Madison because he did not fit the profile of their transfer targets. That's brilliant. Uh, David De Gea is among a number of players available on free transfers who are who are interesting Saudi clubs. Yannick Carrasco set to go to Al-Shabaab. Uh, Wayne Rooney's hopes of signing Ravel Morrison, Jesse Lingard and Andre Ayew, who are all free agents, have been dashed by salary cap issues at DC United. How is Rooney doing, actually? We know he obviously did well with, and he did relatively well with Derby. He was able to create a bit of a siege mentality there. And, um, you know, us against the world because of the financial issues. How is he doing at DC United? 
So at Derby, he won 24 of his 85 games, a 28.2% win rate. At DC United, he's won 13 of 46, a 28.3 win rate. Uh, He also has a 50% loss rate. He's lost 23 of 46. Um, DC United current season, they are 18th in the overall table, Ninth in the Eastern Conference, just about scraping into uh, a wild card spot right now. But Charlotte have a game in hand on them and could pass them. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going all that well for Mr. Rooney. Uh, last season, they finished 14th in the Eastern Conference, which I think is bottom. Yeah. And they finished 28th in the overall, which I don't think is quite bottom. I think it's a 30 teams. Was the 30 teams? And... Overall table. No, they finished dead bottom. <laughs> they did finish dead bottom. There was 28 teams. Now, isn't that's not all his fault. He took over a couple of months into the season, but it wasn't good. Let's just say it wasn't good. Um, yeah, not great. Not great at all for, for Rooney. Uh, wouldn't be surprised he's not there all that much longer. League One Club Monaco planned to try and sign Tosin Adebayero in January after pushing hard to get a deal done in the summer. Barcelona are unhappy. Manchester City attempted to sign Alejandro Balde, Lamine Yamal and Pau Cubarsi uh, this summer. Why wouldn't they try and sign them? You're a train wreck and they're young players that City would like to get. Thiago Silva argued with fans on Instagram after club's Premier League defeat. Yeah, he did have a big old cry and made it seem like people would be mean to him because he was garbage. Uh, that's all we've got for today, folks. Thanks as always. I will see you tomorrow and we will review the transfer window. Now, it might be a bit of a long... I might have to split the pod in two. So this week might get reshuffled a little bit. But uh, yeah, we'll be back tomorrow anyway. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Network.